What's your name? Dale Tafoya. What's the name of your new book? Billy Ball, Billy Martin and the Resurrection of the Oakland A's. Okay, so I remember Billy Ball, and most people in California know what Billy Ball is, but if people don't follow the A's, what is Billy Ball? Well, it, it was a term, first of all, uh, in, the, in the late 70s when Billy Martin managed the Yankees, Billy Ball was floating around for Billy Martin's style of play with the Yankees. Um, the A's version of Billy Ball came about when the great uh, late columnist Ralph Wiley wrote a column on March 23rd, 1980. It was a Sunday morning in the Sunday morning paper, and he first mentioned Billy Ball when Billy Martin arrived in that, the first spring training in Scottsdale. And when, when he was watching these young aides just, just filled with confidence under Martin, he saw the slowest runner on the team, Jim Essien, steal home. And that's when, hey, this is Billy Ball, and it was published in the Oakland Tribune on March 23rd, 1980, and, and it really took off from there. Billy Ball was floating around in 1980, but it really was pop popularized in 1981. Shout out to the Oakland Tribune. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we are going back to the early 1980s for a fascinating time in the history of baseball. In the span of three years, the Oakland A's went from a team that was on its way to Denver to remaining in Oakland, then becoming the toast of baseball, and then crashing right back down to mediocrity. In the middle of it all was flamboyant manager Billy Martin. This is a very good book that Dale Tafoya wrote, and he is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Dale. Wonderful to be with you. I enjoyed this book immensely. True story, which I just told Dale before we started recording. I was only going to read the introduction and a couple of chapters to make sure that I had some good questions, but I couldn't put it down. I thought that I knew a lot about the Oakland A's, but this book taught me a lot more that I never knew. Well done, Dale. Thank you, Josh. And it's, uh, I've always been a huge fan of your work. So it's an honor to be on your show, to talk to you, to meet with you. And I'm looking forward to the next few minutes uh, talking Billy Ball with you. Okay. So in 1979, this is the last year before Billy Martin, the A's averaged 3,800 fans, roughly 3,800 fans per game on average. They had a, the lowest of the low. They announced 653 fans. There was definitely fewer than 653. And the part that I didn't really fathom, Dale, was American League teams lost money when they came to Oakland, which seems unfathomable. But explain what the American League thought about their teams coming to Oakland and losing money. 
Well, in 1979, really starting in, in the late 70s, the Oakland A's were a, a baseball crisis uh, in Oakland. Even uh, American League President Lee McPhail, they, he, he wanted to get the A's out of Oakland and take them off life support. And because the A's weren't drawing any fans, as you mentioned, Josh, that April 17th, 1979 game where they, they drew uh, 653 fans, I mean, fans weren't showing up, so the the American League clubs weren't getting getting a high percentage of the uh, of the sales gate. So they, they just owners like Calvin Calvin Griffith of the, of the Minnesota Twins said, "Hey, let's just we need to stop going to the Bay Area because we're we're losing money t- to go play the A's in Oakland." So just the A's, and as I mentioned, the A's were called the the Triple A's. They were so bad. Baseball's boat people because there was so much instability uh, surrounding the organization. So you're exactly right. The A's weren't drawing any fans, and and the the teams weren't surviving coming to Oakland. Charlie Finley was trying to sell the team. He sold the team to a businessman who was going to move the team to Denver. However, they could not do so because there was this lease. So let me ask you this question, which I know that you can't answer for sure, but if Charlie Finley does not hire Billy Martin, do the A's still figure out a way to move to Denver, or was that the main thing that kept them in Oakland? You know, that's a great question because uh, we, don't, we don't know. The, like as I mentioned, the A's were a baseball crisis. If, if Finley doesn't hire Billy Martin to generate the excitement to lure Walter A. Haas Jr. to purchase the team, we don't know what w- w- would be the outcome of the Oakland A's. The, the, as you mentioned, on December 14th, 1977, uh, Marvin Davis, an oil tycoon, an oil magnate who had all the money in the world, purchased the A's. And he was going to have the A's play at Mile High Stadium in Denver for the 1978 season. However, Charlie Finley, when he moved the A's from Kansas City to Oakland, signed a 20-year lease. Uh, and he wasn't. He would not be eligible to to leave Oakland until 1987. And the city officials would not let uh, Finley sell the team to Davis and move move him to Denver. Um, and, and we don't know the the outcome. You see, the Hosses were around in in the late 70s when the A's had these horrible teams teams, and they clearly weren't interested in pay, in purchasing the club back then. So we don't know where the A's would be. There is some talk about some local owners that could. Uh, keep them in Oakland, Sam Berkovich, and uh, another group from Wayne Valley. But the Hosses had the cattle to put to, to, to purchase a team and keep them in Oakland. But yeah, I don't. If Billy Martin doesn't show up in Oakland, it's hard to imagine they would stay there because there was just so much instability and maybe even fold as a franchise. That that could have been the outcome. So in 1980, Billy Martin's first year, the A's averaged about 10,400, which doesn't sound like a lot, but Major League Baseball was thrilled. I mean, that was about 6,000 more than the year before. And then in 1981, that doubles with plenty to spare. They averaged 23,000 fans per game in 1981. Again, I remember Billy Martin. I remember the hats, the jerseys, the slogans, the advertising, the, the radio commercials. It's one of the few times in baseball history that people showed up to games just to watch the manager. What was it about Billy Martin that made people want to show up to a baseball game to see the manager manage? Right. And first of all, the, the Billy Ball campaign, I was, a, I was a 10-year-old boy living in San Leandro, 
And one thing I remember that sticks out was the bumper stickers that were all over the East Bay, the billboards. You'd go to a store and the Billy Boss schedules with the A scheduled would be on the counter. Billy Martin was everywhere. And he was just, Billy Martin had this personality and he connected with the working class wherever he managed. He did it in Minnesota, Detroit, and Texas, and he did so in Oakland. He was this unpredictable manager, that, and he was the face of the franchise. He was, he was the drawing card in the A's. And when you come to a, a, an A's game when Billy was managing, you never know what you'd see on the base pass. As I mentioned, you'd, you'd see a Jim Essien, the slowest runner on the team, dash home to steal, to steal home base. you see uh, a double steal where Jim – Jeff Newman would just fall intentionally to get in a rundown so another runner uh, could score. But you just had the unpredictability of Billy Martin. When he'd come out of the dugout, he'd argue with umpires. He might bump them. He might kick dirt on them. He was just very entertaining, and that's why he was such a drawing card. You know, one of the other things that I, that I enjoyed, like I mentioned, is just what I learned. I had always heard that the A's were close to going to Denver, but what I didn't realize until reading your book, Dale, was that if the A's did move to Denver, it was possible, if not likely, that the Giants would have played half of their games at the Coliseum and half at Candlestick. It's just crazy to me. Explain why and how this nearly happened. Right. Well, and, and it was close, Josh. The Giants, that's how bad Bob Lurie wanted the Giants, the, the Giants owner, he wanted the A's out of town. The Giants got there in 1958, and they wanted the Bay Area all to themselves. And even back then, in 1980, the consensus was that the Bay Area could only host one major, support one major league team, and that was the Giants who got there first in 1958. The people were saying, why did – why are the A's even here? Why did Philly even move the A's to Oakland? So they were very close uh, to, to moving to, to, to Denver. But, again, the Oakland officials held on to that ironclad 20-year lease and would not let, let, the go, let them go to Denver. And, meanwhile, in Denver, they, when Marvin Davis, this oil tycoon, announced the sale of the A's, all the Denver fans, they were going crazy. They thought it was a done deal. They refurbished the Mile High Stadium in Denver. They were, they, they were getting ready to put, to put together a great TV contract, and uh, their, their dreams were shattered when Oakland refused to budge and let the A's out of their lease. Yeah, the other thing that makes me think, too, is for all the, 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 the well-deserved talk about the state of the Coliseum now, I think that also speaks to how the Coliseum was a better place to watch a game than Candlestick and it almost makes me wonder if this did occur, whether Bob Lurie, then the owner of the Giants, would have decided, you know what, I would just rather have the sunshine of Oakland than the cold, windy conditions of Candlestick for all 81 of my home games. Right. That, that, that's a great point, point because it was freezing at Candlestick, as you know, when the East Bay was hot. Yeah, the, the nice mountains, the Oak, Oak, Oakland Hills. But you're right, during that Getting back to the settlement that was going to happen, the Giants were going to play 35 to 40 games in at the Coliseum to get rid of the A's to Denver. So the Oakland officials would still have some concession, some money coming in in the absence of the A's. So, yeah, just it's just, it just incredible, and you're right. Um, it, it, I, I don't know if Bob Lurie would have liked and just stood there, but that's a great point. He may have he may have really liked, liked there and said, hey, let's – let, let the, the Giants be, be a part of the East Bay community. The other thing that I found so compelling about your book, Dale, was just the constant flirtation 
of the Oakland A's in bringing Billy Martin back home to Oakland was not just in 1980. Explain how close he came to managing the A's throughout the 70s, including what would have been the manager of their three straight World Series teams. Right. There was even talks that Finley was going to bring Billy Martin to manage the first year they came to Oakland in 1968. I believe Finley chose Bob Kennedy that year. But there were talks. I mean, Billy was this local kid, and although he will, he will always be remembered uh, as a Yankee, we can't forget he, he, he fueled the Oakland Oaks in 1948 to a Pacific League, uh, Pacific League Coast title and really birthed a, a, another Oakland renaissance. But even when he finished his career, Billy Martin finished his career as a Minnesota Twins twin, and he stood in that organization a few years. And when he was uh, coaching for the, the Twins – Calvin Griffith made him a coach. He was he he knew Charlie Finley was going to move the A's to his hometown in Oakland, and he was monitoring that Oakland Coliseum being built in Oakland. And he always had on his radar of returning home. Especially Billy Martin was a huge American League fan. He really hated the National League. He was an American League guy, but he was thrilled that an American League come, American League club was going to come manage uh, come to Oakland. He he he. he he would have been thrilled to, to, to manage that, that team. And it finally materialized on February 21st, 1980, a day before spring training when Finley hired him, a day before. Billy didn't have a lot of time to, to build this roster. He inherited the same roster that lost 108 games in 1979. So that 1980 season, the A's do not go to the playoffs, but they are respectable they are dramatically better. They have five pitchers who throw an enormous number of complete games. It's the rookie year of Ricky Henderson. I really want to talk about the 1981 season because that's the one that I definitely remember how the A's got off to this fabulous start. Tell me about everything coming together in 1981 and how the A's, like you said, very similar to just two years before, became the toast of not just the Bay Area, but they're on the covers of magazines everywhere. Right, and, and that's just a testament, Josh, to the arrival of the Haas family. And we can't forget when Billy came to manage the A's in 1980, by August of 1980, he sparked enough interest where Walter A. Haas Jr. purchased the club. 1981 was the Haas' family's first year. They poured a ton of money into the A's operations. They fixed the scoreboards. They padded the outfield walls. They, they just, they just st- had a huge team of sales reps just, just, just invade the East Bay to sell tickets. And it just the, that was really the Haas' operation in 1981. And you saw it translated into the standings. The A's uh, got off to an 11-0 start. That was the best start in baseball history, 11-0. They shot to 20-3. and three. As you mentioned, in April, the ace, five, five aces, R.I.P. Matt Keogh, Kingman Keogh, Rick Langford, Norris, uh, and, and Mike, yeah, Norris. I think there might be a missing one. But they were on the front cover of, of Sports Illustrated. By May, Billy Martin, with an ace cap, was on the front cover of Time Magazine. And get this, Josh, only after 11 home dates in 1981, the first 11 home dates, they already broke the 307,000 that they drew in 1979. This is 11 home dates. It was incredible. If it weren't for that 1981 strike that erased 22 home dates, the 81 strike erased 22 home dates, 
that season for the A's, they would have they drew uh, over two, $2.2 million. Yeah, that was the other thing that, that occurred to me reading your book was just the result. There was, of course, the, the, the strike in 1981 was sad, but the amount of momentum that was building there at the Coliseum between Billy, Ricky Henderson, Crazy George, the, 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 the amazing A's and their five aces headline in Sports Illustrated, it's just all of this momentum that was going. And while the A's still made the playoffs because of the split season format, I felt like they could have they could have rode that wave longer if it wasn't for the eighty one strike. Well, absolutely, and the eighty one strike just killed the momentum. And we can't forget these A's players were out of baseball for two months. They they couldn't work out in any of the major league facilities because of the strike. So they got out of shape. A lot of the players told me they got out of shape, and even some pitchers say that was that you can you can uh, you can attribute that eighty one strike where you, you're, you're not working for two months to some arm injuries. They were suddenly they, – they, these pitchers were expected to pitch complete games. They have two, two months off, and they return after the strike uh, in August, and they're expected to pitch these complete games. And they, they really they, – they, they got into the playoffs, but they really didn't play that well, especially after the strike. They already clinched uh, a spot in the playoffs, if you, if you remember – the first half division lead, uh, winner would play the second half division winner. The A's won the first uh, first half, so they were going to already be uh, in the playoffs. But you're exactly right. That strike really killed the momentum, and, and as you see, the, not only uh, probably shattering uh, A's attendance records as well. In that first round of the playoffs, called the division series, although a lot of people at the time just called it the mini series. The A's right. swept yeah. the Royals, and so they go on to that American League Championship Series. And talk about the perfect storm. It's Billy Martin against the Yankees. And unfortunately, the A's had a bunch of injuries. Uh, Dwayne Murphy and Ricky Henderson both got hurt in what proved to be the last game. And the A's get swept uh, three in a row. And I still can't help but wonder, if the A's had beat the Yankees in that series and had gone on to the World Series, what would have changed? Whether Billy would have lasted longer in Oakland, whether the momentum would have lasted longer too, Again, these are things that we that you never know, but I think it's just fun to wonder what if the A's could have beaten the Yankees that year. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, the Yankees did sweep the A's. and They killed the A's in that ALCS. Uh, the Yankees had the huge payroll, much more experienced team. But it, it is fun to think about it if they get pat, if they get there and Billy manages to take the, the A, the lowly A's, to the World Series. I mean, they're only a few wins away. Imagine what would happen, even though – Year three is always the time where Billy usually gets bored. <laughs> and yep. it always ends up – when he first gets there, he's going to – when owners hired Billy Martin, they, they didn't hire him for a rebuild. He was going to pour his soul to win immediately. And uh, that third year is when he, he got bored and he, he usually goes to another – gets fired, resigns, or, or manages another team. So we don't know how that, that would have turned out, but it's great to speculate what would have happened even greater renaissance and more attendance record shattered if they went to that World Series. Because there was just a – I mean, even that, that ALCS, Josh, that you mentioned in 1981, I mean, it brought millions uh, to the, the Bay Area, to Oakland at that time through hotels and everything. It brought a lot of revenue that, that the, the playoffs, but also that uh, – I believe they had one game they played the Yankees. The first two were in New York. So let's talk about that third year, 1982, and that's a year where the A's had a whole bunch of injuries to their pitching staff, and the, the wheels came off fairly early, and they finished well below 500. 
And again, another thing that I, that was great about your book that I learned was, was how Billy Martin wanted to do things differently in spring training. And as a result of that, his, his, his guys, his regulars just weren't ready for the start of the season. Yeah. And the Haas family made Billy Martin basically the GM after the 1980 season. He was the manager. They made him the director of player personnel. Billy Martin had a lot of power. Billy, and he, as you mentioned, this 1982 spring training, he wanted all, all the minor leaguers in the A system to come to big league camp. So big league camp was packed with over 100, 100 players, and it was a Billy Martin academy. He wanted to be able to evaluate the players, and he wanted the, the, the younger players in the system to be able to, to feel special playing uh, in front of Billy Martin. So the whole, the whole uh, spring training was packed. He brought in all kinds of coaches and scouts, probably 25 of them, they, they were lines for batting practice all the way to, to, to the dugout. There was that many people. Mike Norris told me he got, he got just above 12 innings in that spring training, and it really robbed a lot of the everyday players. These everyday players, spring training is for them to get back into shape. These re- everyday players really didn't play a lot because all the other minor leaguers were, were there pl- playing as well. So And so specifically the pitchers, the pitchers were forced to try to get in shape during the season, and it ended up being a disaster for Billy Martin and the A's. Not to mention, Josh, there was just historic rainfall in Arizona that year, and not only did so many players there rob players of playing time, there was just a ton of rainouts, and just just it, it really set the tone for just a bad, bad, miserable season uh, at the big league level for the A's. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting, too, that we kind of take for granted what spring training facilities were like back in 1982 because they're so spectacular now. But Mm -hmm. this was not a case where they had tons and tons of backfields where everybody could hit and throw, where there's six bullpen mounds, and then there's six bullpen mounds right next to them so that you can watch 12 pitchers at once. It's just one field and then a backfield. That was it, and they're trying to jam in 100 players into basically two fields. Right, and that was their first year of playing at Phoenix. The, first, the, the two prior years there were in Scottsdale, and you're exactly right. There was a big field, and there was a small field. With all the rain, there was no, no indoor facilities for these pitchers to get in shape, even for the infielders to get in shape. So it was just a bad overall spring training and but you have some to argue that it was good for the organization but Billy made that spring training where where he could just indoctrinate the entire A system into his brand of baseball and that was Billy Ball and you can't and you 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 can't say it was a bad idea because it was it was Billy show and he he was the king of Oakland at the time you know yeah, I, I can see why it sounds like a good idea, but then how it turned out that, that it was not. Let me ask you about just some of the mechanics of, of book writing for you. When did you start working on this book, and when did you send in the final version of, to the publisher? G- give us the timeline yeah. here. I love talking about this stuff. So I, I was just studying the bowels of, of Oakland Ace history one day, and when you really study the bowels of history and you really get into the intimate details, there's some great stories in there. There's some books if you really go deep, deep into history. And that's where I found the story. Josh, I saw this, this renaissance. I saw when the, when the A's drew the 653 on April 17th, 1979. Then I saw by 1982, 
The A's had drawn over 1.7 million. Baseball America named the A's the organization of the year. All six of their farm systems were in first place. And I said, wow, what a renaissance. So as I began to study, it was clearly that Billy Martin was the difference maker. And as I wanted to capture the story in a book, it required me to study Billy Martin. I didn't go in there and say I I wanted to write a book about Billy Martin. I wanted to study this renaissance, and it it required me to study Billy Martin. So I wrote a book proposal uh, and pitched it, and it it, it got acquired within a month. And uh, the editor gave me a a year to, to complete it. So, and, and this is the thing, when, you, when you're writing a book, you're like, it's like opening up a business, because you're, you're an author, Josh. Some, part of it's writing, but you're also scheduling interviews. You're, you're also tracking down people to, to see if they can, you can interview them too, and you're also interviewing. So it's not just the writing. So put, put, the, uh, put together the book proposal, got the book deal, and I was able to, to submit everything on time. And at first, the book was called Billy Ball the hustle, grit, and resurrection of the Oakland A's, something like that. But the editor changed it to Billy Ball, Billy Martin, and the resurrection of the Oakland A's. And I said, oh, that's it. I love it. Yeah, I love it too. Um, and, you know, hey, congratulations to you. It is hard to write a book under any circumstances, but especially when it's, it's not like this was the only thing that you were doing, right? Yeah, so right, you're, right. you're trying to juggle your life. You're trying to yeah. juggle everything else that's going on. Um, it took then- tremendous focus. Yeah. It's a, it's you a know, credit to you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when it comes to the research, I, I, I go down a lot of rabbit holes, which cost me a lot of time, but, <laughs> but they're fun, even though they, um, they may not be as efficient as they should be. Tell me about your rabbit holes, going to the Oakland Library, the other places that you would go in order to try and find the, um, the, the news from back then that you could complement with your, with your interviews from modern day. Oh, yeah. Well, well, as you mentioned, I, I, for my both my books, my first book, Bass Brothers and Billy Ball, I lived at the Oakland Library. I spent a lot of time there with the, with the micro, with the films. And there you can just read. And that kind of gives you an idea in real time what was going on on a daily, day, day, a day-by-day basis. And you're able to catch the, the settings, uh, transactions, and really capture um, the climate of that time. So you, you get the climate and the dates, and, and I, I, I probably went through every single day of Billy Ball study for this book. Every single day. You see the details are in there, Josh. Yeah. Every single day from wins to losses. So it was just, it was in me, so it just flowed out of me, uh, you know, when I wrote. But also to comp the interviews, just to weave the interviews in there as well to complement the, the the research from the newspapers and other books as well and that's kind of you kind of just bring everything together and and that's why writing the book proposal helps because you already lay pretty much the foundation the skeleton of the story when it comes to those interviews that you mentioned um tell me one or two where you're just really excited to talk to this to this athlete or this former executive and where it's just such a fun conversation that, that, uh, you, that you kind of don't want those conversations to end. Right. Well, Roy Eisenhart, I was always a big fan of Roy Eisenhart, and he was Walter A. Haas's uh, contact person to, to run the A's, one of the smartest men I ever talked to, Roy Eisenhart, smart guy. Uh, he, he, it was exciting to talk to him because he, Roy Eisenhart met Charlie Finley, and also he, he 
work with Billy Martin. So it was fascinating, fascinating to dive into his brain, what, what he thought about Charlie Finley and, and his brief time talking to him and what he thought about Billy Martin. Also, when, when word got around that I was writing a Billy Ball book, uh, the, one of the first players to call me was Mike Heath. And he told me, I heard you're writing a Billy Ball. He didn't know me. He told me. I Wait, he called you? He called me. I don't know how he got my information. That's awesome. And, but, but this is how much he was, he had so much respect for Billy Martin, but Mike Heath just loved playing in Oakland. I mean, he just, he, he, he wanted to stay here forever, but he got traded uh, in the Joaquin Anuhar trade in 1985 where Joaquin Anuhar came to the A's. But yeah, that was exciting. And Mike Heath, was one of my favorite players coming up too. So it was exciting when he said, yeah, I want, I want to be a part of this book. Let's record. When, okay. Let's do this weekend. Okay. Let's do it. So it was, it was just, it was just awesome to, to, to hear one of your favorite players. And also Mike Norris was a fun interview because he represented kind of the, from the triple A's to Billy ball. I mean, my, Mike Norris coming up in the A's organization, in the late seventies, I think he always felt he wasn't treated the best. When Billy got there, Billy just had this ability to just build confidence in, in, his, in his players. He started – Mike Norris started feeling good uh, about himself, and suddenly he's runner-up runner in Cy Young in 1980. I believe he was 22-9 and nine in a magical season. And he had just an unhittable forkball that would just drop out of sight when left-handers – they could add no – I mean, they, they couldn't hit that uh, screwball of Mike Norris. I love hearing that because – there's a lot of people who were fans of Mike Heath and, and I've always been yeah. a great admirer of Mike Norris for um, w- what you mentioned, but also the way that he came back, you know, from some of his demons and was part of the A's um, little run there in the late eighties as well. Um, but I also want to ask you about that outfield and maybe that outfield didn't get its full due because Billy Martin got so much attention, but Ricky Henderson, Dwayne Murphy, Tony Armas. In my mind, it was the best outfield in baseball for about five years in a row or so. And there wasn't a whole lot in the infield and catcher, but man, those three play. All right. Billy Martin, he built, he built that team uh, on pitching the five aces in that outfield. I mean, if you think about it, Josh, the outfield could have done a, a, a magazine cover. I mean, they, they, were just, they were just so awesome. And not only they were – not only awesome offensively, defensively. I mean, they worked with the pitchers. They snatched every ball that came their way. I mean, Dwayne Murphy played this this ridiculously shallow center field to cut the singles off up the middle and to throw the runner out of third on, on a single from first to third. And he would also rob players of home runs, hitters of home runs over, over the center field fence. And you had Armis with the cannon arm who crashed into, into walls. And Ricky Henderson, that he, he can nail somebody out of third base trying to get to third. So you had just – and Billy Martin, he made sure that he promoted that outfield. And I think that's when people around the league say, hey, these guys are the best outfield in baseball. And it really started when Billy Martin started promoting them when he was getting a lot of the attention for the A success. It was Billy Martin who promoted them. Yeah, I remember reading that all three of them came up as center fielders, and all three of them played center field at, at, at some point um, in the major leagues. I always remember the way that Dwayne Murphy kept his cap down low, and growing up, all my friends, if you ever keep your cap down low, they'd say, hey, we're doing it Dwayne Murphy style because right. of him. But let's talk some more about Ricky. And 
I always thought that he got robbed of the MVP in 1981, that he should have won it over Raleigh Fingers. And then when you come to 1982 and he sets the stolen base record, and really that became the only thing worth watching those last two months or so of the season when he steals 130 bases. And the fact that this is also an Oakland guy going back home, and I know you had details about how he set up tickets for kids in Oakland. And I think this is also just part of the puzzle was this young dynamic outfielder who's from Oakland and he is sort of um, – look, there is no Billy Ball without Ricky Henderson. If Ricky's not stealing 130 bases, there's no Billy Ball. Right, right, absolutely. And Ricky was definitely a part of this narrative, uh, absolutely. And, and at the same time, Ricky had a manager in, in Billy Martin that encouraged him and gave him the green light to steal. And he swiped in his in, – Ricky Henderson arrived in 1979 and sparked the A's that year. His full, first full year was 1980, and playing his first full year under Billy Martin, he swiped 100 bases. Only Lou Brock and Maury Wills did, did that at the time. By 1982, as you mentioned, he shatters the Lou Brock's record, ends up stealing 130 bases. And, and yeah, you're exactly right. Ricky was just such, such a force. And that's why he, he was one of, one of just one of these Oakland kids that when Billy came, he just made them believe. He, 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 got, he, he got them to buy into, into his philosophy and program. And, and to this day, these young players are still loyal to Billy Martin. Uh, even when, when Ricky was playing uh, with the Yankees, you know, the consensus was he wasn't really comfortable unless Billy Martin was the manager of that Yankee team. So it just – Billy Martin and Ricky Henderson were just a match made in heaven, really. Love it. I love all these stories. Uh, we, could, we could talk for a long, long time. But how, um, how can people find your book? Where can they get it um, in case they want to read it? And I think I absolutely encourage people, not just Ace fans, but I think this is such a fascinating piece of baseball history. Where can they find the book? Thank you. Well, it's just on Amazon, all online outlets. Um, I hear bookstores are opening soon in libraries, so they'll be in all the bookstores and libraries. I don't know how soon they're going to be open, but I heard they're opening soon. But it's online everywhere. You can just Google Billy Ball, and there'll, there'll be all kinds of places you can purchase the book. Yeah, I guess this is both a good time and a bad time to have a book come out because people can't go into a bookstore to, to browse and, and look through it. But at the same time, a lot of us are home and we have a lot more time to spend reading books. So maybe this is, uh, maybe this is a good time to have a book come out. I'm not sure which one. Right. Well, I'm, I tell people because I get that question. is like, man, what's it like to publish a book to come out during a pandemic? And I'm like, I'm just happy it was printed and published before this pandemic wiped it out because there are a lot, of, I'm sure, authors that – their books have been canceled or maybe postponed, delayed because of this pandemic. I'm glad it was, it was my, my, the, the release date was March 24th, right around the time of this pandemic. I'm just glad it made, it made to the print before this pandemic altered it. So I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, it's, it's a book and I'm just happy it's out. And then I'm, I'm glad that uh, when people look back at Ace history, it's, it's going to, going to be in there for the archives. Well, let me finish this with this. And again, I want to congratulate you because you're not a, you're not a full-time writer, but you've managed to write two books, which I think is just uh, such a, a fantastic accomplishment. But what would be your advice to someone who maybe has a similar situation as you where you're not a full-time writer, you don't do this for a living, but you have an idea and you want to write a book? What's your advice to, to that individual? Uh, just um, sacrifice uh, and, and, and read and get used to rejection. You're going to have more, you know, you're an author. You're going to have more rejection trying to be an author than, than yeses. But as I mentioned in my acknowledgments, it only takes one yes. 
So you're going to have to get used to rejection. And when you face constant rejection, you got to press on and have confidence in your product. Press on because eventually as, as you improve your, in your craft and writing, as you press on, eventually you're going to get that one yes. I've had a ton of no's, but I've had two yeses. Bash Brothers and Billy Ball. I'm happy with that. It's you rejection. Should. How to react to rejection. Yeah, you, you should be happy. I'm very proud. Um, wonderful to talk to you, Dale. Uh, glad that we met. I hope that we can meet in person one day. Absolutely. Uh, next time I get back to the Bay Area, again, congratulations and thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. Always big, uh, been a big fan, Josh. Take care. Keep up the work with the great podcast. That is Dale Tafoya, and this is Life Around the Scenes.